I can't tell you, honestly, over the 13 years, how many people have emailed, DM'd me, or have personally come up to me at tournaments and said, I started jujitsu because of you. And I still keep up with these people and I'm following in their journey. Hey everyone, I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest today, Betty Broadhurst. Betty is a jiu-jitsu black belt and the founder of Roll Forever, an organization that aims to increase accessibility to high-level training and sponsors professional athletes. Betty is someone I've looked up to since I first started training, and it was really inspiring to learn more about the ways she's contributed to the sport and worked really hard to create opportunities for jiu-jitsu athletes of all kinds, but especially women in the master's categories. Here's our conversation. Thanks so much for hopping on a podcast chat with me. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Really happy to do it. I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so I'm very excited that we finally were able to get together. Me too. Betty, I'd love to start off. Would you like to give an introduction of yourself for listeners? Um, my name is Betty Broadhurst, and I am a retired uh, registered pharmacist, and I am uh, 66, uh, will be 67 my next birthday. I'm 66 now. And I... Um, Went through college, uh, was a registered pharmacist. I attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm a Tar Hill. And uh, actually, to give myself, I was a senior when Michael Jordan was a freshman. Oh, wow. Cool. So that's my kind of claim to front when I can tell people if they want to kind of age me. You know, I was in my last year in UNC Chapel Hill when Michael was a freshman and was you know, the, the big thing back then. So um, that's kind of dates me or tells everybody where I am. So he was 18 when I was 22 or three. Um, so then I was married, had two kids, worked full time as a pharmacist, uh, ended up in a, unfortunately in a divorce and uh, moved, relocated to Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh raised my kids in that area near the beach and then after that uh I was probably in my 50s early 50 50-ish when my daughter left and she went to college in California and I was on the east coast of North Carolina and all of a sudden I was an empty nester no husband no you know significant other and I had work friends that were far. I worked, I've always been a hospital pharmacist. So I had work friends, but many of them were younger or still had kids. Um, so some of the friends that I had made in the community that were my age or in their early fifties were doing things like bridge or book clubs, you know, things that are interesting and that I like, but they didn't really inspire me to do, you know, or get me motivated for exercise. They walked, jogged, a couple played tennis. And I played tennis. I played golf. I mean, I, I was always very athletic as a young woman and tried to keep my health up throughout. But it just not the same when you're that age. And uh, 
the women your age are slowing down and they want to do more, um, I guess, group things and social things. And I found that I wasn't getting the, I don't know, I think when your family leaves the nest and you're alone and you live alone, there's something about you have to make an effort to go out and be around people. You can't sit alone anymore. I mean, going to work and back is a sense of community, but when you try to find outside activities, sometimes going to a book club where you spend an hour and then you might have a little, you know, glass of wine afterwards and you get up and drive home doesn't really kind of fulfill those needs sometimes that we have internally. And so was looking for something I joined a gym like to just kind of like do aerobics and things like that but there's still it's like it wasn't the same people you said whoever showed up for class or if you go to lift weights you're kind of alone even though there's a whole room full of people so I kept looking and saying this isn't isn't for me uh you know but I wanted to stay healthy and I was too I guess the tennis game I liked a lot, but it was very, uh, the women sometimes my age were getting very competitive and I just wanted to do something for fun that I could come and go as I please. I didn't want to have to have a tennis time or a date, you know, that I had to be there. So long story short, at being single and alone, I had a couple of like dinner dates and things like that with men. And unfortunately, um, I had, a, I had taken a blind date, and this particular person uh, liked me more, you know, than I liked him, and I didn't really want to see him again. He was a nice man, but unfortunately, he ended up being a stalker, and it was to the degree I never met. He was parking in the parking lot of where I worked. Um, I was still working full-time. Uh, he was following me. He was making calls to my employer. It was very bizarre. I mean, I had no idea. It was like a friend of a friend, and they didn't know a whole lot about him. So ended up restraining order and that kind of thing, which as we, we all well know in this day and age now that a restraining order is really just a piece of paper. I mean, it doesn't, if someone wants to get you, they're going to get you. And the type of work I'm doing, I was in a hospital with parking decks, sometimes working in the winter months, I would get out, it would be dark. So I kept thinking, you know, I don't want to carry a gun. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I own a gun, but it was the kind of thing that it was like, you keep it a nightside drawer and you don't ever touch it. I mean, it was one of those things I didn't really want to learn. And I didn't definitely didn't want to carry one and you can't carry one on hospital grounds. So I thought, you know, if someone were to grab me in this parking lot, I would like to at least be able to defend. So I looked up self-defense, found a self-defense course at a local on a weekend. And I went, there were probably about 15 women there and they said, wear sweatpants and a sweatshirt. And I went and it was two black belt instructors from a local jiu-jitsu gym. And they did the basics, self-defense and all. And I thought, well, this is really cool. And they brought the pads and we did the trap and roll and the, you know, the breaking out of the bear hug, little things like that. And I, I really liked it. And 
it was strange. I was the only person my age. Most of the women were in their young 20s to 30s. It's a college town. UNC Wilmington is there. So there were a lot of college students there. So I got their card and spoke to them. And they did it as a community service. But, of course, you know, they're marketing their school. And I said, I really like this, but I don't feel like I got enough out of a two-hour session that I would feel comfortable like remembering it. I don't have a recording of it, you know, just like anything else that we know as Jujitera uh, is what we have to do is reps and things. And uh, I said, is there, do you teach private lessons for self-defense? They said, well, you know, you might enjoy jujitsu. Come to ours. So they gave me a thing. I made an appointment. I went and did a tour. I watched classes and I thought, ah, oh, there's all these young people mainly men there was one girl that was maybe a junior in college and i think because her boyfriend was taking she was taking so and this is in like this is 13 14 years ago so i'm talking like you know 2005 six seven whatever whatever year it was um and i'm going you know i don't know and he said well if you want to take private lessons that'll work too i said well maybe that's what i should do so they arranged where I went every Saturday and I had a private lesson one hour before the Saturday morning class. And after the first couple of lessons, and there was always an instructor and a lady at the desk there. And, uh, and I started learning a few basics and we had done a couple of the moves at the self-defense course, but he did much more detail and he was, he gave me some articles to read about jujitsu and why it was a good art for weaker, smaller, women you know those people that can't defend themselves so that gained my interest not so much in self-defense it kind of intrigued me that you know if I go down this rabbit hole this might be something that I can use anywhere anytime and it's good exercise after observing the class and seeing them running and do shrimping up and down the mats I said you know I mean I'm in great physical shape my cardio is good I don't see why I can't do it but I had this after being stalked, I had this real bad self-confidence problem about being at my age, of course, was a thing. And he said, we'll just do the privates for now. So the next lesson, he brought in an Uki for me, which was someone going to the 10 o'clock class, which was really nice because I got to have a partner. I got someone younger. It's a fee, um, it was a male. It wasn't a female, but, you know, I used him as an uki, and I started learning, like, clothes guard. I started learning an arm bar, and then I started learning other things, you know, just all the very, ba like, a very basic beginner's class. Well, the next set, and I've signed up every Saturday, and he would always have a different uki, and it was always someone that was in the, in the next class. So by the end of two months... I had already trained with eight different people. So he said, you know what, Betty, we finished our lesson. You know, half the Saturday morning class. Don't you want to come in and just join us? I said, well, okay, I'll observe. But I ended up drilling. You know, I ended up going in there and drilling because I had worked an hour, you know, with all these people that had volunteered to be my Uki. So after that, I signed up for the Saturday morning class since I knew the people and I kept up the private lessons. So then after three months, I said, OK, I'm going to do it. So I signed up, joined the gym. 
Then I started going to the night class. Some of the Saturday people were at the night classes, and then there were a lot of new faces. But I had a much more, an easier comfort level the way he transitioned me in. And because I already knew some of the basic moves from working with the uh, students that were the Ookies and doing the private lessons, I didn't feel like the new kid in class when I went to the, like the Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday night thing. And then I liked it so much, I kept going back and, you know, I signed up for the full blind thing. I bought a couple of geese, got the no gi gear and found myself feeling very much more flexible. And I had gone to some yoga classes, but I really didn't like it a lot. Uh, you know, but I found like this, this is really working for me. I really like it. And so I kept on within six months, they were talking about getting ready for a competition. And I said, you know, that would be fun. I'd like to do something like that. They said, well, we've got one coming up in three months. It was a Naga. But I said, well, I want to train with you guys. I would stay late and do the competition rounds. And I was mainly, mainly defending, which is what white belts do, because you don't know what you're doing. But as the deeper I went into it. So fast forward, first tournament, here I am an old lady. There's nobody, of course. So they, I just do the, you know, beginner bracket. I'm against an 18 year old or something at, you know, age 54. And, you know, the thing is that I stepped on the mat. She took me down and mounted me, but I was able to like, remember how to trap and roll. I didn't win. You know, she ended up mounting and arm barring me, but I, I did win in my mind because I wasn't afraid and I knew what to do, you know, had it, or I had a fight. She had to fight to get the arm bar. I mean, I didn't just lie there as if I had been attacked in a parking lot and had no knowledge, I would have just laid there and gotten killed or my arm broken. But instead she had to fight for it a little bit, even though it was a little bit, it was something. And that was so confident. So then time progressed. I ended up, a year and a half later, same gym, got my blue belt, kept going, and then decided, hey, I want to start competing more. So I started going to local competitions outside of that and always competing against women. There were never masters. There were always women in their 20s, a couple maybe in their 30s when you went to more regional things. And they weren't really Nagas, but they were things like, um, let me say, uh, there was a, uh, in, on the East Coast, there was something called U.S. Grappling that was very big. And a lot of the women there were so kind and, you know, and because maybe my weight, I would sign up and I may have two or three matches and I would usually lose. But the fact that I was there and people a lot of these women that were mothers of the kids were going, wow, that's amazing that you're doing that. My son begs me to do it, but I'm afraid. And I think when they saw me as a 54, 55, 55 or six by then as a blue belt, they started getting interested. And so I started competing more in my first year at world's masters. I went as a blue belt. And I had no coach. No one went with me. I flew out there. And I remember it wasn't even at the Las Vegas Convention Center. When people talk about what it was this year, being Jiu-Jitsu Con and 10,000 people, 
it was really an old folks convention back then. Only people that were old did it. Like a lot of the people that were really like the hot athletes back then in jujitsu or the well-known athletes didn't do masters. So it was in a high school auditorium. We stood on aluminum chairs. I had no coach and I was a master five or six by the charts couldn't find a match, but found a lady that was a master four and I cut weight and went down to master four just to have a match with her. And then from then out, all the years thereafter, I never, ever had a match in my age bracket. I always had to go down two age groups, go up in weight. One year's purple belt, I fought an ultra heavy woman that was 275 pounds and I weighed 150 and I dropped down two age groups just because there was no other purple belt. Uh, there was no one that was a master six. There was no one that was a master five. Uh, so I took a match with her. And the other purple belts that were master four were lightweight and feather. And I just couldn't cut to that. So my choice was always to have to go up. So I was always fighting people younger and heavier. Um I, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually wanted to share this with you. And this, this I think is directly fits into what you're saying. The first time that I heard about you was a couple years ago. My husband showed me an Instagram post that you had made. And I think that it relates to what you're talking about. You, It's a picture of you. You've got a really big smile on. You're sitting on the shoulders of Tate Franklin. Does that sound familiar? Yes, that was my first opponent ever. And I, I just wanted to read the caption that you wrote for listeners, if that's okay with you. Sure, sure. Okay, great. So you say in the post, so much to be thankful for this year. So thankful for those willing to step up for others to compete. Here's a throwback to 2016 Masters Worlds. I'm on the shoulders of Tate Franklin, my opponent who had just defeated me. We were celebrating together because without each other, there would have been no match. We were the oldest two female purple belts that year, and I dropped Masters 5 to face her. Be grateful for your opponents. They are pushing you to improve. Be that person who chooses to compete so others will have a match. The opportunity to compete is a privilege and priceless experience. Don't let age, size, or fear stop you. Lead and sign up early. Encourage others and help support all in jiu-jitsu. Your being there will make a positive difference for everyone, especially yourself. And so my husband showed me this post when I was really early on in jiu-jitsu, a couple months in, and I think I was getting ready for my first or second competition, and I was really nervous about it, and I, I was just scared to compete. And when he showed this to me, I think it was the first time that I really started understanding that competing is an opportunity. And it is a privilege and it's not something to just be afraid of and that your opponent isn't your enemy. In fact, there is no fight without your opponent. Yeah. And I think that's more prevalent in women's jujitsu. Well, in the early days of women's jujitsu, when there were so few of us uh, that were older and it is a privilege. And I think sometimes men 
with their egos and all, we all know that it seems like men's jujitsu, sometimes they do see it as the enemy a little more than women do. I think women are a little more grateful for the opponents because we're newer in the sport. The recent rise in women's jujitsu has just been in the last five to 10 years. So we didn't have anyone. So we were grateful. And by the way, that was our second match. My for Our first match was at Blue Belt the year before. So we faced each other the next year. We both got promoted to purple and faced each other, but we wouldn't have had a match. In fact, the first match that was in the high school that I told you about as blue belts, she, uh, she's a blue belt under half Gracie. And so she was from San Francisco. We got to be great friends. We're still friends today. And the referee actually, after the match, I was crying because I had cut weight and I had, stepped out there she got me with a kimura she was you know 10 10 years younger than me maybe uh but the referee took his phone and actually gave it to the timekeeper and said take a photo of me with these two ladies and he posted it in brazilian and someone picked it up and sent it to me talking about how he almost cried watching the two of us meet and hug each other and even though it was a jujitsu match, it was almost like we were just so grateful to be there and we were crying because we could step on the mats and that he wanted his wife and all the women back in Brazil to see this, that it it is such a privilege and there are people out there for you. And he reposted it and then I got it translated and reposted it. And I still keep in touch with that referee today. Uh, he teaches actually he moved to the U.S. and uh, he's a Gracie Baja in Tennessee and actually we stay in touch together uh, so it's really funny that once in a while I'll repost that photo and tag him if it's something special you know out like a anniversary of that day but that the one with um, me on her shoulders uh, Mike Columbus who's a does a lot of jiu-jitsu photography was there and we were celebrating because, I mean, I lost, but we were celebrating. And so I don't think anyone can find has ever found joy in a loss, but it was in the joy that we competed and that we got to stand on a podium together, just the two of us. And we were the oldest women there. I mean, there were no black belts our age. There were no, I mean, we were the oldest people doing jujitsu. So there were no 54, 57-year-old, 58-year-old black belts or brown belts. We were the oldest, highest ranking. So everyone kind of was looking at us. And that's when the attention started coming in, you know, as we kept it up. You know, you hear about people starting and stopping, but the fact that we didn't stop, uh, and she and I, and she is a black belt now, just as I am. But I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's such a happy memory. I mean, it was such a happy memory. And I thought, God, if everybody could feel what I'm feeling right now, when, because I think it's a time and place where you are, if you're in your young 20s, you're in a, and you're a competitor, the seriousness of being a competitor sometimes takes away, you're not breathing in the moment. And we were enjoying the moment. We were looking at the crowd, we were laughing, hugging, and celebrating that we had each other and that's why I swore you know that even though they were local tournaments I was going to always sign up and I was going to be there for women because I felt like 
there's still women in their young 20s and 30s that are afraid to compete or they're going, I'm going to wait and see if anybody signs up. And so I would always sign up for no gi advanced or no gi whatever. And they would show up and they see this old lady and go, oh, and I'd go, you know, it's okay. You know, you got a match and, and, and it was there. And I lost most of my matches. That's the thing. I probably had the biggest losing record because everybody I went with was usually 30 years younger than me. But I have to say that as I got better over the years, they did have to fight for it. I mean, I didn't let them, it wasn't just like a, a 10 second submission. So, um, I'm, I'm was very proud of that, but I think I was more proud of the fact that I had in the gyms, I would go to open mats or my own gyms or people I would go visit and train with. A lot of the kids' mothers started coming out and saying, I've been wanting to do this. My kid, my husband and my children do it, but I don't. And I'd say, well, I'll be here if you want to train, you know, and I cannot, I can't tell you honestly over the 13 years how many people have emailed dm'd me or have personally come up to me at tournaments and said i started jujitsu because of you and i still keep up with these people and i'm following in their journey you know and i try to respond back then i tried to respond because i was really trying to help women grow when i started we couldn't compete at pans master one was as high as they would allow you to go to pans ibjjf Men could go through master six or seven, but if you were older and you were female, they cut it off at master one and at all the opens, any open, they had no master's divisions beyond master one for women, men, they did. So I was part of the movement. Uh, I was a purple belt at the time with a lot of women in the masters, BJJ masters movement that um, petitioned. IBJJF to add master's divisions to PANS. And we had a contact person at IBJJF. There was a committee of six of us. We were able to get 5,000 signatures and we were able to get, I think we had to get a minimum of 500 women to sign up for them to add it. And we did it. And from then on, and that's recent history. That's like only six years ago. You know, that's not like old history, like you would think 2000 three or 2007 so that was the big breakthrough for masters women and then you started seeing more women compete because they felt like why go to jiu-jitsu if i can't go compete or if there are other women and then the friendships you started making were lifelong so it was almost like an annual trek to go to ma masters worlds and um and then as i progressed and kept training here at virginia beach uh, I would help teach classes and all. And then when I competed at Brown Belt, uh, I'm so grateful for um, Miriam, who stepped up as a Master 7. Even though we weren't the same weight class, she was like one weight class below me. We took our gold medals in our own weight class, and then we did an absolute match. And then the absolute match, uh, I went, she's the only person – in my history that I ever had that was the same age bracket. I always competed in other age brackets. So, and from there, I, I won the match and on the podium, I got my black belt. And without her, I would not have had 
ever a match in my own age. And I'm so grateful to her forever for that, you know. And she had never competed before. That was her first competition. She was a lot, she was a, an older, she started older, just like myself. And I think she trained at Hoyles Gracie in New York. She was from New York. And we talked about it back and forth. And we knew, you know, that we were making history kind of because we were the first Master 7 match ever. And um, then now there's a more Master 7 women because the thing is the cap hasn't raised. So it should be every five years. So Master 7 starts when you turn 59 if you're going to be 60 that year. So now I'm 67, and there are women in there that are 59 approaching 60 just based on the calendar year, if they're 60 by the end of the year. So it's kind of the same thing is with men, too. So it's one of those things that they need, hopefully, to open up a Master 8, which will be age 65 and up or even a master nine, because I know a couple of women that are blue belts that are 70 or 72 that compete. I think one lady goes by um, something like Jiu-Jitsu Grandma. I think it's her Instagram handle. I think she has a, a big following. She's a blue belt. Maybe she got her purple recently, but she always uh, competes at master seven. There are a couple other women that, but none of them are in their 70s. Uh, so we don't have a master eight bracket yet. So, well, Betty, if there's anyone who can get that going, I have a feeling it's you. I'm so impressed. I, I didn't realize, you know, that you were a part of this movement to create new age brackets. That's, that's incredible. And I know you've made other contributions to jujitsu too. I wanted to make sure to ask you about role forever can you tell me about that organization? What is it? And how did you get it started? Oh, thank you. Well, um, I think one of the things that I lived in North Carolina and I was in sort of a rural community, not rural, but, you know, not big metro city where we had a, a lot of gyms. And at the time, I left Wilmington and moved to a area in northern North Carolina because my mother developed breast cancer and being an only child I needed to be near her throughout that process and uh, I was able very fortunately uh, the local rural hospital had a op job opening I drove 20 miles to work I was able to find a rental home near my mother you know because you do what you have to do, you know, and I was single. It's, it's like when you're single in that age, you don't have the roots, you know, that you, you, it's not like I have to pack up and go. My kids are gone. They are their own with their own lives. My son's married, you know, um, my daughter was in her last year of college. And so it was easy. So I found a job and, you know, I'm also approaching the retirement age for work. So that kind of thing was, it's easy. I need to be with my mom. I took a job there and was able to go and um, train at a gym that was 30 miles away from where I, my mom's house. So I would drive 30 miles there and 30 miles back to a local rural gym. It was the only gym in the area. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was 60 miles a day to train. 
but I loved it and I kept doing it because I didn't want to lose anything. And I, I was there for four years. And then once my mother beat cancer and got the clear sign and all, that's when uh, I relocated to Virginia because I had a lot of friends in Virginia, in the Virginia Beach, Norfolk area. And one of the people that I had trained with uh, a lot was Diego Bispo, who was a black belt from Brazil. And he had his own gym and I had a lot of friends there. So I relocated, uh, got a job at the at a major hospital there and then began training and living there. But Roll Forever started back at the North Carolina area because the problem was North Carolina had some gyms, but we didn't have gyms with any big names. And this was before Lucas LaPree opened headquarters in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was probably the first superstar, you know, that actually set up headquarters. So one of the things I found that there was a lot of people did not get an opportunity, and this is before BJJ Fanatics, didn't get the opportunity to learn from big names. They would have to pack up and travel to New York and go to Henzo Gracie's or a even more expensive trip would be to go to California. Uh, or either, I think the closest big name was probably Ryan Hall in Washington, D.C. So I said, you know, it would be kind of cool if we started having seminars. So I started saying, figuring out, if I brought in uh, a, some superstar and had a seminar, set up a couple of seminars, it would help the athlete because that's how they make money. And it would also help our community because I would be bringing great talent out to teach us. And then the teachers can go back and teach the schools or the partners or whatever. I talked to a couple of gym owners. They said, yeah, if you set it up and you, you bring them in, you can run it and charge admission. So I opened this little company and I called Roll Forever because I wanted it to represent the ability to roll for a lifetime. And some people go, what does Roll Forever mean? And I said, well, it means anybody just like me. And I was using my own history when I picked the name. I said, because I want people to know that this isn't a sport that you age out of. You could roll with anyone. I could roll with a 10-year-old, a 30-year-old, or a 90-year-old. So roll forever kind of meant that just that, that you were able to train jiu-jitsu for eternity, affinity, whatever. And that is why the logo I created has the infinity symbol on it. So my, my, my um, mission then was to try to bring in high-level talent and Jeff Glover was one of the first people. He was very big, many years, gi and no gi, um, back in the 2007, 2010 era. I got him to come. I had three different gyms, two in North Carol two in South Carolina and one in North Carolina that I wrote to, and they agreed. And so I picked Jeff up from the airport, took him to the three different gyms. He did a seminar. He made money. Everybody learned lots of no-gi jiu-jitsu and new techniques. And, you know, he actually competed in ADCC, and uh, he's very good in the gi and no-gi. And uh, had an excellent response from they had never had that opportunity. You know, once in a while, a school for promotions would bring in their head honcho from the home, you know, office, but it was never open to the public. This was like, you know, all affiliations invited. 
and I just needed to host Jim. So that happened with him. And then that was such a success. So then, uh, and I was very, I love the gi, but I really liked no gi because it was more aerobic and I liked the pace of it. And I kept up and I watched a lot of no gi. And so I had actually been to a jiu-jitsu tournament in Maryland and met a lady in the stands and she said, oh, are you here to watch my, um, to watch your kids? I said, no, I'm actually competing. Well, she said, I have two kids here competing in the gi and it's that tall skinny boy over there in the purple belt and then the little chubby guy and the, the little chubby guy over in the white belt. It was like a Naga or something. But we became friends and her name was Trish Ryan. Little did I know, and we became Facebook friends and texted each other and stuff, you know, because she was amazed that I was doing it and her boys had wanted her to do jujitsu. And this is going to lead into back to roll forever. But uh, it comes to find out her sons are Gordon Ryan and Nikki Ryan. And so we became friends when I was like a blue belt, purple belt from just meeting on the bleachers. And, and had this friendship. Well, by then, I knew Gordon was starting to win a lot of tournaments. And I was, you know, keeping up with him through her. And knew that he worked with Gary Tonin and things. And so I said, I would love to have Gordon come down. He was a brown belt and do a tournament. I do a, a seminar. So I just did a Jeff Glover one. was well received. She said, well, I think he's got a super fight. It was like some super fight circuit in North Carolina, and he gets paid to fight. So I'm going to ride drive with him, and I'll come, and Nikki will come too. So I said, great, I'll set up a seminar. So I set up a seminar at my local gym. My instructor had never heard of him and didn't even want to host it. He said, and then another said, hey, I've heard of him. I think he's one of Gary, uh, Gary Conan's students, and he's really good and no gig. Well, so they agreed, and it, we put it on the calendar for three months down the road. In the meantime, he got his black belt before, and then in the meantime, Gary Tonin got hurt and couldn't compete in an EBI. Gordon stepped in for him the weekend before my seminar and won it, and all of a sudden, his name was all over. You know, no one had heard of this kid that filled in, and here I was having a seminar and charged people something like $50 a person and had begged people to come and only had like 30 people coming. And, and you know, it was the why, and I have the photo of us, of the little group photo. There's a group of about 30 people sitting there. And because after his super fight, they drove back to my gym, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and we had his first seminar there. And it was really, really fun because I got the um, people were getting submitted right and left and they didn't by Nikki who was a little kid then and I and actually Jessa Khan was there because Jessa lived in North Carolina in Virginia and she was a little bitty kid and I have a picture of her and Nikki rolling and they have to be more no more than 12 years old or 13 I mean if this seminar did so that was the second seminar that Roll Forever did so then the next one um, I think Nikki, I think it got to be um, where I start, more people were hearing about it. And so I brought Bernardo Theria down and he came and did a gi seminar. 
And we had that, we had amazing attendance for that. And this is before he even created BJJ Fanatics. He was still working for Marcella Garcia and in the process of opening his own school in Boston. He was actually talking to me at dinner. He flew into Raleigh, North Carolina about that. So he was one of the first ones that I had. And then we had Ethan and Nikki, Ethan Crellinston and Nikki Ryan came. This is when uh, it was just getting going. Well, by then, I was seeing that God, there really is a market for this. And so, and it's helping these athletes. They're making money. Well, then I started seeing that there were more and more people that needed help in this arena. So we started using it to sponsor athletes, not just that. So I kind of honed the company in to sponsor these people that were trying to be professional athletes like Ethan Crellinston, Oliver Taza. But the first person I ever sponsored was a guy named Pierre Oliver Leclerc or P.O. Leclerc. He's from Canada, trains at Trainstar. And I used to go up to New Jersey and stay with Trish Ryan and go train in the blue basement with the guys because I, I was really into no gi and her boys would let me go with her. So, I mean, it goes way back. So that was like before they went to Puerto Rico and all that other stuff. So I uh, met Pierre there and he was my Canadian contact. So I started sponsoring him. He was a uh, purple belt that would come down to New York a lot to train two or three weeks at the Henzo's and then go back to TriStar in Montreal and carry back the knowledge. So this was like back when people were just learning leg locks, getting into that game, you know. So I started sponsoring them a little bit, but the money I'd make from the seminars, I would sponsor them. Where somebody said, you need to start making rash guards and all and sell it to help supplement the income. So I just started doing a few basic items, nothing big, because I said, I'm not, I don't want to compete with people that are my friends that have, you know, gear apparel. I really want to just do this as more of a fundraiser thing, and the money goes to the athletes. So it went from there, and then the next thing I know, I started getting more athletes, like Keenan Cornelius came, J I booked JT Torres, and what happens is, you know, they charge a fee, or uh, they want a certain fee to come, and when that fees met, any of the things that went over, the profits went toward my sponsored athletes. So then... I finally was able to get enough high-level athletes that the seminars and the gear actually went to them. And that included Oliver Taza, um, um, let's see, Ethan Crellinston. And by working with Roll Forever, I was able to help them come to the U.S. I was their visa sponsor because if you don't have a sponsor that fills out the works with the uh, immigration service, with a company in the U.S. as your employer, you can't get a working visa as a professional athlete. And that, I mean, meaning that they can't get paid to compete. When they compete on who's number one or something, you have to have a professional athlete visa. So by owning a company and wearing my gear, I was able to sponsor them so that they could get a three-year visa to compete as a professional athlete, which gave them the opportunity to come live permanent, live full-time and train and compete in the U.S. And then I did the same thing recently for, let's see, Luke Griffith. Is, um, I'm not sure if you know, but he's a sponsored athlete for me. He's from South Africa. And Brianna St. Marie is a female that's a 
sponsored athlete. I have two or three ambassadors or I, when I say sponsored, I mean that they wear role forever and I help them on a smaller basis, but they are in the U.S. They haven't had to help help with their visa. So I help put together seminars for them. I help them when they go compete. And any of the funds that Roll Forever raises, 100% goes to them because, you know, I kind of do it from the heart. I don't really do it. I don't really have a reason to do it uh, other than wanting these young people an opportunity, especially the ones in other countries. Like Brianna, being Canadian, even though she can come and compete at non-paying things, for her to be able to compete at who's number one or in a paying event in the U.S., she had to have a professional visa and a sponsor. So that was a role that Roll Forever, I saw Roll Forever could do and then help have them for seminars and help them make money, you know, throughout uh, their professional career because that is their full-time job. So it kind of grew to that, and that's kind of where I am today with it. And I know it sounds kind of like a strange, it started out doing just seminars and bringing athletes to rural areas, and then it went into sponsorship, and then it went into helping athletes from other countries get a visa so they could come train and be sponsored, and then here I am today. <laughs> so that's where I am right Betty, now. Betty, that's an amazing story. I'm so impressed so by bizarre. what you've been able to accomplish. Yeah, so, I'm very proud of it. Uh, it's one of these things that, you know, I'm, I'm a pharmacist by profession. I mean, I have a master's degree in health administration, which is kind of like the health equivalent of a MBA, but it's, it doesn't prepare you for marketing and I'm not very tech savvy. So a lot of the stuff that you're supposed to do, like market on the internet, not, I'm not very good at, and I only have a few items, but all those items that sell, all the profits go to the athletes, and then I help market and book seminars for them and so that I don't even have to do it anymore. What I do is contact gyms and say, Brianna St. Marie is going to be in the area this month. Are you interested in hosting? And I like email 10 or 12 gyms, and then I'll get responses. And then I know what their fees are and what they need to pay and whatever, and then that money goes to help them you know, with their flights for the non-paying competitions, things like um, IBJJF, th things that you don't get money for winning, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, and I've gotten, and then since, you know, I, and then I retired a year ago from pharmacy and started training more and, uh, and teaching some at my local gym and then working more, helping my athletes promote themselves and from there, I got started getting more involved because uh, my athletes compete a lot in the ADCC world format. So I got started getting involved, I think, two years ago. I went and took the referee. and uh, I had refereed at a lot of the local tournaments, but uh, I really thought I had uh, a student that I coached, actually, that did the West Coast Trials. And that's a whole other story, but... Um, he was here from Virginia Beach, but I went and took the referees course twice and I ended up getting picked. I was one of three female referees for the West Coast Trials uh, in 2022, which was enormous. And then now that with the opening of ADCC Opens, 
I took the judge's course. I've been uh, a secondary judge, being the second judge at the table at the ADCC Open. So I actually just got back from Chicago last week. I was at the Chicago Open. I did the Costa Mesa Open, the Dallas Open, and plans are to be at uh, Atlantic City for the New Jersey ADCC Open, which is, I'm really excited because it gives people that love no gi, especially kids, because IBJJF doesn't have uh, a no gi option for kids. It's only gi. You can't really get, compete at no gi until you're a juvenile blue belt. So the nice thing about the ADCC Opens is it does have all age brackets starting at like three to four. I mean, the little kids, different rule. I mean, not rule sets, but different submissions and things like that. So I have been overjoyed with the fact that I'm getting to be involved with that because with age comes things like um, arthritis. and I mean, I, I still roll, but I cannot go as hard as I used to. I mean, 13 years ago, and I still do more flow rolls. I like no gi more, and I like teaching, and I like doing um, technical rep. I don't like to do what a lot of gyms, and including mine, the last 20 minutes of class is what they would call pojada rolls. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, these these bones, being female, I'm, wor I'm worried. You know, I've been, I've never had an, in I've had one injury years ago, and it was very minor. And I've never had an injury or a broken bone or a torn anything. So I'm very lucky in that aspect, and I want to keep it that way. So I do a lot of flow rolls, but I like to do a lot of positional drilling, especially with younger people, because I find that even though I'm older, I know I have a lot of wisdom that I can verbally tell them and adjust with my hands and feet to help them get in a better position or how to move a certain way or how to shift weight and things like that, that it takes a lot of 101. So I like being in class and being able to have that interaction. So it fulfills so much for me, even at this age on a social level, but, and as far as a family unit, as we all know, our community, but I think over my history of my personal jujitsu journey, my family grew pretty big, uh, just from the contacts I made and the athletes I helped sponsor and the gyms I've been to and been welcomed into and the women I've met and talked to and, and, you know, just finding like my best friend is um, through jujitsu. Actually, we've been good friends from back when we were working on the pans thing together to get women into pans. We were both on that committee It's Felicia. Uh, and she's probably my dearest friend in the world, she's um, about five years younger. But, you know, Felicia was one of the dirty dozen women black belts. She was the no the number five non-Brazilian black belt and the um, number six non-Brazilian black belt and the fifth, Amer fifth American, I think, to get uh, a black belt in the uh, outside of Brazilian women under Jean-Jacques Machado. So she's like a fifth degree black belt right now. And she is part of the Roll Forever team. She wears Roll Forever. She represents us on the West Coast. Uh, she lives in L.A. and trains with Jean-Jacques. And she expanded her role in staying in martial arts by going and taking um, 
learning more about the California Association by doing things like going to the referee school and judging. And she's now an MMA judge, a certified MMA judge. You can actually see her at the judge's table. I mean, uh, at a lot of fights like Bellator or UFC, if they're held in California, because she's only licensed to do that in California. Um, but we get together a lot. We went to ADCC together, uh, the Worlds in Las Vegas two years ago. So she's been probably my mentor and my role model. She actually won silver in ADCC in 2007. So I knew about her before she ever met me because I was looking up women black belts, you know, and trying. I was like very studious of the history and all because I thought, God, if it wasn't for her, people like her. And she won um, worlds, gi and no gi and pans gi and ADCC all in one year. And she was 39 years old in 2007. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, yeah, that's pretty impressive. And people don't realize that. And so you'll see a lot of her. When we were at ADCC, all of the older people that were being inducted in the Hall of Fame, like Barrett Yashid and everybody, oh, Felicia, like she'll still go to his gym and roll with him. And, you know, she was, okay, she and Eddie Bravo were purple belts together under Jean-Jacques. And everybody knows who Eddie Bravo is. So she grew up under Jean-Jacques Machado, her professor, as as did Eddie Bravo. And then Eddie Bravo, once he got his black belt, went off and developed his own system. And Joe Rogan is a black belt under Jean-Jacques. Joe, I think, was a blue belt when Eddie and Felicia were purple. And they were all living in California. So she's very influential in my career as a mentor and watching her and then never would I have dreamed we would have become friends and co-workers on the movement to get PANS to open up, IBJJF to open up and allow older women. Because as we become older, we go, we want to play too. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be locked out because really? you know, we're old. So that was a big, big uh, um, highlight in my life because I got to work with her and got to see that happen with PANS. And now, you know, I'm involved with ADCC. I'm still um, marketing role forever to do seminars. Uh, Luke Griffith just did a three-stop seminar tour back in February. He went to Charlotte and uh, to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and a stop in Virginia. And Brianna and um, Luke and LeClerc, who is a black belt now, and he's probably one of the top grapplers in Canada. We had a beach retreat this summer and they came down here to Virginia Beach and had a two day retreat where we went surfing as well as having jujitsu lessons. So that was my last big seminar where I had multiple athletes. And so it's um it's it's amazing. You know, I've I, I feel very blessed that I something as going to a self-defense seminar just to learn something, to take care of myself, sparked my interest. And here I am, you know, 13 years later, I have a black belt and, you know, and it was even mentioned, and I know, I know this doesn't, I'm not trying to say it to be conceited, but I think it was such a novelty that Joe Rogan even talked about it on his podcast and showed a clip of me on the podium getting my black really? belt. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And uh, I actually have it on my Instagram where I reposted it uh, from him and thanked him. And I met him. I went to a couple of the Who's Number One things in Austin uh, with Trish when one of her sons was competing, either Gordon or Nikki, I'm not sure, because they both live in Austin now. And so I flew down to stay with her and we, and actually Joe Rogan was there and I got to actually meet him, even though he had already knew I was the lady that got her black belt on the podium at 64 years old or 65 years old. And um, he was talking to a, a female sports person who said she wanted to learn a martial art he said well it's never too late she goes oh i'm 33 and then he pulls up (laughs) jamie hey pull up jamie uh the lady at worlds that just got her black belt you know and they talk about it he says oh and i met betty at uh who's number one a couple of months ago so it was kind of cool here and and my son went crazy mom they talked about you on joe rogan you know you know my son doesn't do jujitsu my daughter doesn't do just, but everybody knows who Joe Rogan is, you know, yeah. so they thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Not that I got my black belt, n- none of that, you know, right, you know, right. You know, I'm like, I'm more, you know, no, I was very honored that he would mention my name, but the fact that, you know, getting your black belt, winning the match, being at world's masters and getting your black belt on the podium, how perfect could my life be? And I feel like that I have this life that was, pre-jiu-jitsu you know i had college pharmacy career marriage unfortunately divorced two beautiful kids college i have grandkids and then jiu-jitsu came and then now i have this jiu-jitsu life that is so different than that life before and you know because my husband my ex-husband was a banker and i was a pharmacist and we had the two kids and we went to the soccer games and we did the had the vans where we carpooled the kids and did all those things and then i had this life so you know it's almost like gosh i feel like a cat with nine lives or just somebody that has been so blessed to have a different chapter and a whole different field of something that so unrelated of anything I knew about before I was 55. So it is never too late. It is never. Uh, and the opportunities that's open for me for travel and friends around the world uh, have been unbe- unbelievable. And, uh, and, and for people like yourself that reached out to me. And that meant so much you reading that to me that from Instagram, because, you know, I forget those little moments and all of that. I mean, really came from the heart because I really, am I really am a nice person and I don't I I feel like I work for everything I did but I think the big thing is giving and trying to help others which I always thought it always comes back to you in the end and giving to help some of these athletes get started showing up on the mats for other women to get them involved in jujitsu and now trying to help the athletes with the visas be able to come in and compete and now getting to work at ABCC uh, and being around people of a like community, you know, it's so many facets of jiu-jitsu beyond just going to a gym and competing that, you, you, some, you know, I could never go back to my own gym, but I could go to a gym every weekend to open mats or go to seminars or go to things. So it's so much, even though it's a small community based on other sports, it's so diverse and it has opened up and it's opened up so many doors and it's those doors are open for everyone. You just need to, you know, take a step and go forward. I can say personally, 
that you had an impact on me long before I even spoke to you or really knew Mm -hmm. much about your incredible list of accomplishments. Just that one Instagram post, like I said, put this idea in my mind of how to have a more positive relationship with competing. And that, that really planted a seed for me. So thank you so much for doing that and for all the ways that you've contributed to the sport. I mean, I'm just so impressed with how much you have done during your time experiencing jujitsu and the way that you've impacted other athletes and created opportunities for people is so beautiful. And I want to know what's next for you. What do you see yourself working on next? What's the next project? What would you like to see change or improve about jujitsu? Where are you headed? Um, I think right now I would like to um, help. I would like for my company to be able to add more athletes that are trying to get established because there's so many people with dreams of becoming an athlete and you hear people say, oh, the jiu-jitsu lifestyle. But, you know, they shouldn't have to work so hard or have GoFundMes and all that to pay some of these astronomical registration fees and things like that and then just get a medal. Um, I'm not putting down any particular event, but I would like to see reward money, maybe especially for the professionals and even the people that are semi-professional that are trying to break in. Let's give them something to at least help them break even for the effort that they went, you know, the hotel room, the expense to get there. I mean, surely if you charge all these people a hundred dollar registration fee, there must be enough money to give the blue, the purple belt, first, second, third place, $500 each. I mean, that's one thing I would like to see. And I think there are other people, their pockets of that. I know there are a lot of women working to try to get equitable compensation because in some events, the compensation for the paying of some of the big things like the Grand Prix uh, that's on what they pay the women and what they pay the men are different. Uh, And I think there's a flip side to that in that sometimes you have to look at when you pay the person that's the absolute winner versus the male versus female, like ADCC opens. You had a thousand men sign up and you only had 400 women, I think it's very, it's okay that the man should make twice as much because I think, you know, when you could, who contributed to the pot, you know, that the money comes from. So I think that that's the kind of thing you're going to have to look at by venue. Um, I would like to see Roll Forever grow more. Uh, I have a lot of messages from people from Canada and South Africa wanting our products because they want to support the athletes from their countries. So I would very much like to be able to open um, satellite shops where people could buy or order without having to pay horrible uh, shipping fees so they can support the athletes of their country. And we could sponsor athletes within a country as opposed to just ones that come into the U.S., because there's, I've had so many European athletes message me and ask about sponsorships, but, you know, I don't have a revenue source over there. And for them to buy from the U.S. my website and to ship it is just astronomical and it doesn't help. 
So that's another goal is to looking at maybe expanding more globally so that I can help more athletes in other countries. And um, I think, and then continuing my work in ADCC, I really like it. And I want more kids. One of my missions is really to help more kids at a younger age, because so many kids do jujitsu, to maybe get involved in no gi at an earlier age, because it has become so popular and people become so good at it so young now that if you don't start early, and I know a lot of people that only do IBJJF are missing a lot if they don't start doing no gi until they're 17. So, uh, that I mean, I love the gi. I love competing in the gi. And I think the transition is pretty easy. But it would be nice if they could do it before they were 16. You know, a lot of smaller comps have it. But, you know, a lot of the kids have never formally trained no gi, like gone to a no gi class. So there's just, you know, I have kind of an array of things. Right, right now, I'm trying to put together um, some seminar tours for two of the athletes. So I kind of do that on the side. And uh, then for myself, you know, it's now that I'm retired from pharmacy, I'm, I can put, I was doing all this on the side while working full time. So I only retired a year ago. I know. So uh, you know, June made a year. So, but a year and three months ago. So I was doing all those things on the side while working full time. And so now I think I can devote more time. You know, I want to like a lot of the stuff was done, you know, on a on a mini budget like the website and things like that. And I think I, I'm in a better position to go back now and upgrade and make things look nicer more modern and uh you know try to not that i want to compete with the big leagues i just want to help my athletes make money i want them to get they work so hard they have to pay nutritionists they have to pay gym fees or someone to help them go lift the the you know the hidden cost of being a, a, a a a world champion it's not just that one match. It's all those hours and days and, you know, paying people to help them, you know, make way, paying people to help them to eat healthy, paying people to help them to lift the correct kind of weight, to do the right exercises, to complement jujitsu. It's like um, when you see MMA and they have like a whole string of, a whole string of coaches in the locker room. The jiu-jitsu athlete has a whole team of people behind them. You just don't see them at the competition. I mean, I'm talking on the professional level. We just don't see them standing, you know, sitting in that chair while they compete. We only see their head instructor sitting in that chair. So, you know, it it does, they do deserve a lot more, uh, especially those that are up and coming. So that's sort of the goals, you know, just like expand role forever and, hope to book more seminars and you know i think the use of um video online like fanatics and other not just gbj fanatics because there are other formats that athletes use to sell their technique tutorials has taken a lot away from people sometimes wanting to go to live seminars but I can tell you there is nothing better and you can never take away the opportunity to say, hey, I went to a gi seminar, Roll Forever Held in Raleigh, and I got to roll with JT Torres. And, you know, that means a lot because or he walked by and he helped me adjust my pressure or where I wasn't doing my collar just right 
or Gordon Ryan. I've had Gordon Ryan twice since he's been a black belt. So he's come back two times to North Carolina. And uh, they were complete sellouts. Uh, And so having to say that he walked by and he adjusted my foot or he got on top of me and showed me how to apply pressure, you know, whatever. You can't get that from watching a video. So I'm still a big advocate of live seminars. And I think that a lot of people um, that are true enthusiasts or want to support the athletes and to really learn would get, get so much more from face to face, just like this interview, seeing you, seeing me and our reactions and all, we get so much more from the interaction rather than just a one way watching, you know, like a tutorial. So anyway, that, that's a goal is to keep the live seminars going because number one, it makes the athlete more personable. You get to meet them and see what kind of person they are. And some of them have very good, and teaching, I have learned from the athletes I work with that teaching actually, they tell me, helps their skills because they really have to study and make a lesson plan for what they're going to teach, you know, make sure they know the intricate details and that they're able to break it down. And it helps them also when they're presented with different body types they haven't seen before different skill levels and they go over and help adjust them they become better because it gives them an opportunity to touch and interact with people of different sizes and skill levels so there's a lot of win-wins for both sides of live seminars so growing the seminars and putting up seminar you know for the athletes is another big thing that is you know for my 2023 upcoming 2024 goals well betty you strike me as an unstoppable woman i have no doubt that you are going to continue to grow and continue to support more athletes and continue to make a difference and i'm so excited to follow your journey and to follow roll forever and to promote it on this podcast so Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I really appreciate your time and all of your insights. And you really are an inspiring figure to me. And I'm sure so many other people in the jujitsu community. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Kara. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the opportunity. And I'm glad we finally were able to get together. And uh, anything I can do to help you on your end, because what you're doing is good. You're helping spread the word, you know, and if people don't know or have this time to listen and hear about other people's journeys or how they got into it, it may affect it may impact someone else. So you're doing a good thing. And I thank you for it. Thank you so much, Betty, for joining me on this episode. And thank you to everyone for listening. You can find Betty on Instagram at BJJBetty. And you can learn more about Roll Forever and check out their gear at RollForeverBJJ.com. Find me on Instagram at A Higher Flow. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.